Welcome. This is Karen Modakaitis, and you're listening to How She Really Does It, the place where inspiration and possibility meet. I talk a lot about meaning and purpose and the stories we tell ourselves on this show. And today I'm really excited because Emily Estefani Smith, who's the author of The Power of Meaning, Crafting a Life That Matters, is here for an interview today. So I'm so excited to share her with you. And I will circle back after my interview with her. Thank you so much for listening. Emily, hello and welcome to my show. Thanks for having me, Corinne. It's really, I'm really excited to have you and to talk about meaning and our stories and how our stories can craft our purpose in our lives. So first, one of the things that really drew me to your work was in your book, The Power of Meaning, you talk about a meaningful life. And, and I want you to help clarify for that for the listeners, because so often we think of really grandiose things in our lives to, that have to be meaningful. And you say a bit differently, actually. Right. So, um, so I, I wrote this book because I, I really wanted to understand how people today are leading meaningful lives, how they're finding meaning in their lives. And one of the ideas that I had going into it was that uh, in order to kind of lead a meaningful life, your life has to be extraordinary in some way. You have to kind of, you know, do something that changes the world or become a, a monk or, or, or travel to a, a monastery, um, go on kind of this, this big journey that helps you figure out what your meaning is and that allows you to um, change the world in some grand way. But what I discovered is actually um, that most of us, of course, are leading more ordinary lives and that there, there's something really meaningful about those lives that we can all learn from. So um, the I, I kind of define meaning in my book as connecting and contributing to something that's beyond yourself. And you can do that, of course, by doing something big like you know, working on a cure for cancer or, you know, being part of some political movement that you think is going to make the world a better place. But more often than not, the way that people find meaning is by, you know, being a a good parent to their children or, um, you know, helping their colleagues out at work, you know, deciding to become a teacher instead of a political activist, affecting, you know, the lives of their students directly in that way. And, you know, there was a study that I came across that I, I, I thought really brought this point home. It showed that adolescents who do chores around the house, they actually um, rate their lives as more purposeful. And the reason, I think, is because, you know, it's a small thing doing the chores, but doing them makes them feel like they're part of something bigger than themselves, that they're kind of part of a you know, their family unit and that they're contributing to this family unit. And that's that those kinds of things are where meaning comes from. I think we're going to have to find a way in our family to reframe that with my teenagers because they (laughs) don't have that same point of view. But then that goes back to the stories. And what are the stories that we tell ourselves about 
whether it's a job or it can be a volunteer situation or family household chores. Isn't that right? Right. Exactly. Yes. So I think, so I talk about, um, the importance of adopting a meaning mindset in my book. And that's exactly what you're talking about that, you know, so many of our lives are already kind of inherently meaningful and we just don't realize that a, that they are meaningful and B that there are these sources of meaning all around us that we can tap into to lead more meaningful lives. And so if we tell a story about meaning, that's something like this, that, you know, my life, there's so many opportunities for me to, to find meaning in my everyday life and we'll be more likely to, uh, to, to feel that our lives are meaningful because we'll kind of seek those opportunities out uh, to build more meaning. And I, so I really appreciate it because I think like you, you know, a lot of people, and I used to struggle with that of something grandiose. So I'm going to cure cancer and that will give my life meaning and purpose. And when we can realize that being a parent, um, being kind to the cashier at the grocery store and, and, or even, uh, as with parents volunteering, whether it's in kids' schools or, you know, in their sports organizations, they're, when they're out there and going about doing that and helping, um, something that's bigger than themselves, they actually get a lot back from that contribution, don't they? Yeah, exactly. Um, so basically, you know, I, so I, I kind of what initially um, launched this this book idea was that I I kind of felt frustrated by how often we hear um, you know that we should go out and pursue <laughs> happiness and you know do everything we can to make ourselves happier and it just seemed to me to kind of be missing the point that we actually what most people yearn for is to lead a meaningful life and that we do all kinds of things that don't make us happy. Like, you know, we, we started playing a musical instrument or we volunteer or even we have children. There's, there's so much research showing that parents with kids are, are unhappier than uh, people who don't have kids. So we do all these things that are kind of stressful and effortful and require us to sacrifice. And the question is why? And I think the answer is that these things make our lives meaningful and the research is pretty clear that even though they don't make us happy in the moment, they do um, lead to this deeper sense of well-being and peacefulness down the road. And so that's kind of um, the reward of meaning. And Viktor Frankl, the Holocaust survivor, is somebody who I write about in my book. And he, I love this quote that he has. He says that um, happiness uh, can't be pursued. It must ensue. And it ensues from leading a meaningful life. Ooh, I really like that quote. Mm -hmm. So I know that you have um, a master's degree from uh, positive psychology from the University of Pennsylvania. And so you're familiar with this idea and this term of well-being. Can you mm -hmm. explain to the listeners, what does that really mean? What does this life of well-being mean? Right. So... Um, so I, I have this degree, like you said, in positive psychology, and positive psychology is kind of the academic study of well-being. A lot of positive psychologists are, uh, you know, social scientists who are kind of trying to measure in the lab how happy people are, how meaningful their lives are, and they're trying to also measure what are things that can make people happier, make their lives feel more meaningful. Um, well-being itself is kind of this vague term. And 
I don't think I've seen, you know, one definition of it. People define it in all kinds of ways. So one person might say, oh, um, they, they might define well-being as just happiness. Another person might define well-being as leading a meaningful life. When I'm talking about well-being, I'm, I'm usually referring to kind of this sense of contentment, satisfaction, and peacefulness. So like being at peace with your life. And I think that, um, you know, in Buddhism, in um, the kind of Eastern traditions, when they talk about well-being, that's what they're describing. It's this um, kind of being at rest and at peace with your life, having the knowledge that, you know, you're, you're on the right path and you're doing the right things. So, Emily, how do people understand that they are on the right path? Because don't we, what we suffer from culturally is this not enough, not right, enough money, right. not enough time, not enough title, not enough up the corporate ladder, not enough. So how do we know when it's not enough? I think that, um, I, that that's a great question. Such an important one. I think that it really, you have to kind of get off that treadmill and define for yourself what a meaningful life is. I, you know, I'm working on an article right now about how we we think that leading a meaningful life has to be extraordinary in some way, kind of like what I was talking about earlier, that you have to do something great and grand. But actually, um, I think what, when people come to that sense of well-being, when they kind of start experiencing that sense of peace with respect to their lives, it's when they reconcile themselves to the fact that an ordinary life is okay. You know, if your life isn't great, if you don't get that promotion, if you decide that you are happy being mid-level in your career as opposed to climbing that corporate ladder, that, it, that, that that's okay and that you can find meaning within that. So I think that takes courage to kind of decide, I'm going to step off of this um, this path that so many people are on. But I think that um, if you devote yourself to meaning defined as, you know, connecting and contributing to something beyond yourself, you will ultimately, you know, you might, you might become more successful and get these other things as well, but you'll have the satisfaction of knowing that you're not on that treadmill, that you're kind of, you have a different ideal of what a good life is than what the culture is encouraging. How important is gratitude in all of this? I think gratitude is is very important because it it, it you know the, the the culture of not enough is a culture that's kind of ravenous. You're constantly aspiring to the next thing. I think what gratitude does is it shifts our focus and and leads us to focus on what we already have and being grateful for that. That you know. We, we don't need to focus on getting that next promotion because we're so lucky just to have had the opportunity to, you know, go to college, get this job when so many others don't have that opportunity and are struggling because of it. So I think that gratitude can really help us um, get grounded and centered and feel that kind of peacefulness that we, that we might not always feel because we're so anxious to, to get the next thing. So when somebody's in a place of well-being, like, cause this spring I was walking around just downtown. It was an ordinary day, just running around doing some errands. And I looked around and I went, wow, I live an amazing life. I live in a small university town. I love the work that I do. I have this great show. I get to interview people, fantastic people like yourself. I love the, I just love my life. 
on the other side of that is there are also a lot of shit storms that occur in my life. But I really believe that I have an amazing life. So when somebody is in a life of where they have well-being, does that mean that there aren't problems that are occurring in certain areas of their lives? No, not, not at all. And, and that's such a great question. And I really, really love your use of the word shitstorm. Um, but um, <laughs> it's so th- this is this is this was part of my frustration with the whole happiness side, guys. The idea was that, like, you're supposed to feel happy and feel good all the time. And in fact, I remember reading um, books within positive psychology and also just within self-help that encouraged you to distance yourself from things that made you feel bad for things from things that were stressful, whether it was a class or doing something that was hard. And I just think that so misses the point that so many of the things that we do, they're worthwhile because they're hard and stressful and require us to sacrifice. And that a life, any life is going to have moments that are really difficult and, and, and adversity, and and they're going to require resilience. We can't escape from that. And so I think that a good life, a life of well-being recognizes that. And by recognizing it, it it kind of, it, it lets you be better prepared, better equipped to encounter those adversities. And one of the things that surprised me uh, in the research that I did was that the people who kind of weather adversity and get through these storms of life in the most resilient way are the ones who already have meaning in their lives because that meaning is kind of a, this, it gives them this kind of strong uh, foundation that they can get through these storms. Um, So I think that well-being, having meaning and having adversity, these things can exist side by side and that the one having the meaning helps you get through the other more effectively. You know, it's it's so important because I think I agree with you about like, you know, we have these <clears throat> pursuits of happiness or, and I'm not trying to name any titles, but it's this quest for happiness. And I hear parents mm-hmm. all the time say, I just want my kid to be happy. And they, what they will do is they will clear the path for the child instead of prepare the child for the path mm-hmm. and realizing mm-hmm. that part of the falling down and getting back up is they're learning to how to handle adversity. And one of the things that Brene Brown, she's been a guest several times on the show, has mm-hmm. taught me is that in order to feel the good feelings, you have to be you have to be able to feel the bad feelings too. Like you want all the feelings. If you try to numb the 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 dark feelings, you also numb the good feelings. But isn't yeah. that what we try to do in our society? It's like, oh, let me have this pursuit of happiness or joy or whatever pleasure and not have any of this bad stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, you know, we need to live out like our full range of emotions. And the thing about parents, like I, I can totally, I mean, not totally because I don't have kids yet, but I can, I, I think I can understand where that's coming from. I have a, you know, I have a younger brother, I have people who I love and I really don't want to see them unhappy. And if I can do anything I can to prevent them from being unhappy, I will. But And so I think it's this natural inclination that we have. And yet I think that, you know, when it comes to children and people who are learning about life as they go, we have to let them experience unhappiness and suffer and kind of um, let them do it in, in in a safe and controlled way so that they see that, you know, it's, it's okay to experience these negative emotions and that if, we do, that's not going to be, our lives aren't over. I think sometimes, you know, young people, 
that, that one of the things about being young is that you, whenever any kind of adversity hits, whenever you feel sorrow or you get dumped or whatever, you think it's the end of the world and your life will never recover. Um, well, obviously that's not the case. And one of the ways that we can help them learn that's not the case and therefore give them the hope to push through is by letting them fail and letting them suffer in their younger years. That takes a lot of courage, doesn't it? I think it does. And, it, and I think it requires you as the parent or the guardian or the teacher or whatever to, um, you have to put yourself in a difficult emotional place. You know, you have to be willing to do that because um, you don't want to see them suffer either. But, you know, the payoff is that if they do, um, they, they kind of, they're better equipped next time around. Yeah, it's it's like building a muscle if you if you practice yeah. it, and and again, it, it's about it's in some ways it's kind of like if you go and work out and you do it in a manner that's safe, it's going to be good for your health, right? So that's what you're talking about is that yeah. letting people fail, letting people fall down, and but having a container there that where it's they're not like you know jumping off of a bridge or you know those kinds of crazy things, but where they can fail and they can get themselves back up. That yeah, no. Exactly. That, 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 that's exactly right. And, um, right. So I think, you know, right. Good parenting, um, is, is providing them that container, that support, knowing that, you know, you can go out there and fail, but we'll always be here for you. And then, but what about in the workplace being able to find meaning? Cause you have some great stories about the workplace and jobs that we would, you know, it's not jobs that are aspirational jobs like custodial services um, yeah. you know, but how some of these people have tremendous meaning for their jobs. I'd like to talk about that next. Yeah. You know, I think that there is this, this idea that you have to, you know, find this kind of perfect job for you, a job that where you get to, you know, live out your passions. It has to be your dream job. But the fact is that most people don't have jobs like that and they don't experience um, a calling relationship towards their job, like their job is just their job. And, and so the question is, if for people who want to lead meaningful lives and yearn from meaning, yearn for meaning, um, how, like, how can we get that in these more ordinary, non-aspirational jobs, which are the ones that most people end up leading? And what I found is that people who kind of adopt a service mindset towards their work are the ones who ultimately feel that their work is more meaningful. So, um, you know, there's a study that I write about, about people who work in a university call center. Their job is to call up alumni and raise money from them. Uh, and, you know, it can be demoralizing because you're calling up people asking for money. Most of the time, you know, you're interrupting their dinner, they hang up on you, they don't want to give you money. So it's like failure after failure. And, what the researchers did was they told some of them, okay, don't just think about this as a way for you to make money. Think about, you know, what you do, and, and this is true, what you do is helping people who are on financial aid be here. You're help funding their education. And the, the, the employees who got that message and, and understood that their job wasn't just about them, but about helping somebody else, they ultimately were more productive and effective at raising money. So there's something about knowing that your job is serving others and making a difference that gets people engaged with the work that they're doing. 
Um, it reminds me of this, um, this story. It may, it may be apocryphal, um, but it's a story that gets told about when John F. Kennedy was visiting NASA in 1960, I think. Mm -hmm. And he ran into a janitor in the hallway and he asked the janitor, so what, you know, what is, what is your job here? What do you, what, what do you do? And the janitor said, uh, Mr. President, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. So, you know, meaning comes from kind of connecting to that, that bigger beyond the self mission that is at the heart, I think, of most organizations. So Emily, you and I are just meeting each other, but my listeners know quite a bit about my story. And um, one of the things that I do beyond the show and my, my own coaching practice is that I'm the executive director of this youth nonprofit, and it's a swim team in town. Uh -huh. And I've been doing it for 12 years. And this was not something that I set out to do, especially after because I, I used to be a college swim coach and I left that. Sometimes mm -hmm. I laugh. I go, really, I used to have people that did this stuff for me and here I'm schlepping. But <laughs> one day I was at the gym and there was this videos news was on about you know girls sex trafficking and i thought oh, yeah. about that and i was like oh that's horrible and i should get involved my capacity is pretty full though with all that i have going on and i and i sort of started getting mad and beating myself up right the, which is the opposite of well-being because we're comparing mm -hmm. and despairing and and i thought about it and i thought well one of my good friends you know this has been one of her huge crusades and she's been speaking at the un and she's building um places in India and she's been working on this. So I go, well, she's doing that. And I look at that and I go, yeah, but what am I just doing? I'm just teaching swimming to a bunch of affluent children, right? Mm -hmm. That kind of discount mm -hmm. that. And I thought, wait a second, that's not true. I'm building a community. I'm teaching children how to be resilient. I'm, we're cultivating confidence. You, I never know what's going to grow out of those mm -hmm. pools because mm -hmm. the, I'm not teaching swimming. What we're yeah. doing is we're t helping people become their best versions of themselves. We just use the pool as it. And it was interesting because a couple weeks ago, one of the parents who's been with us for 12 years, he's, he was talking about, because our philosophy is every monster, it's the aqua monster. So every monster matters, like every kid, whether mm -hmm. you're fast or slow or in between. Mm -hmm. and, and he said, you know, it's not, it's, he goes, it's really, really true that everybody matters on this team. And he says, and what happens over time is the kids grow and they learn and they become more resilient. The parents grow and the coaches mm -hmm. grow, we all grow mm -hmm. together, right? Mm -hmm. And so I can, I, and I, I, that's why, I mean, again, going back to your book, and I love it because when we can, instead of like, oh, well, this isn't sexy, I'm not at Google or, you know, doing something like that, but how are you contributing to the world, which goes back to Viktor Frankl's um, uh, book of the, the three things that give us purpose, meaning and purpose, right? Being of service, being in a loving relationship, and I, lost, I went blank on the other one, but when you are doing things like that, you never know what gets cultivated out of there and who grows. So that's what allows me the energy to go late at night to the pools to go coach kids because it's fun and you're and you're creating something that's bigger than yourself. I think that's I think that's so wise um, and absolutely. You know, there's I, I, I've talked to so many kind of college uh, college age students who, with really good intentions, kind of want to, you know, live a meaningful life, have a meaningful career. And they think that they have to do something, you know, devote themselves to a humanitarian cause, like the one that you described about, you know, trafficking, mm -hmm. or, you know, be the founder of like the next big base, you know, company like mm -hmm. Facebook or Uber. And, um, and really, you know, we each have our own paths, and we each have a particular role to play. And it might not involve doing 
one of these things that are kind of like what we think of as the script for a meaningful life. And yet that doesn't mean that we're not making a difference in the lives of others or leaving behind a legacy in how we treat other people and help them grow and become the best versions of themselves. Well, and, you know, for me, like my, my friend who and colleague who is doing that work, she did it after her kids were raised, right? And she can mm-hmm. travel and she has freedom and she's, you know, with Gloria Steinem doing stuff and, you know, all over the world doing things, but it's working for her. Like for me right now, my way to impact the world is more locally based just because of yeah. what's going on in my own life and the choices no, that I want to yeah. make. It's so true. And it reminds me of, of something that I learned as I was writing my book, uh, which, which you know, it, it kind of seems obvious, but it didn't occur to me until I was doing the research. And it's that your your purpose, your meaning can change over time as your life changes and as your circumstances change. So, you know, when you're younger, you're kind of trying to figure out what your purpose is and you're, you're kind of, you know, in school and that's kind of, that's where you are on your path to purpose. And, you know, as you get older, you, um, you're kind of focused on your career and then later on kind of comes family. And then afterwards, once the, once the kids are out of the house, there's kind of this moment to really, you know, redefine or rethink what, what your meaning is and what your purpose is. And, um, and it's, um, it's a wonderful opportunity and it's just a reminder that like you can have different acts of your life. You know, you have the first act, the second act, the third act, and that your meaning can kind of be fluid and shift as you move through this life, which is, you know, life is short, but it's also long, you know, we can do different things across the years. Mm-hmm. I have a question, Emily, because we've been talking about meaning and purpose. Is there a difference between what the, each of those words mean? Yeah, I, I think there is. And so in my book, I, I'm kind of, I think meaning is this, it, it, you know, I define it, like I said, of, of, you know, connecting and contributing to something beyond yourself. And it's kind of this feeling, this sense that we have. If you ask people, is my life meaningful? They can say yes or no, because they'll kind of turn inward and evaluate themselves and, and evaluate what they're doing in their lives. And after kind of, you know, interviewing dozens of people about what makes their lives meaningful and reading through, you know, thousands of pages of psychology research and philosophy and literature, I started to notice patterns um, in, in what it was specifically that makes people's lives meaningful. And there were four things that came up again and again. Um, the first one is belonging. Um, the, you know, the, the third one is storytelling. The fourth one is transcendence. And the second one is, is purpose. And so I kind of think of purpose as one of the building blocks or pillars of a meaningful life. If meaning is the sense that you have, you know, that your life is significant and coherent and worthwhile, purpose, it helps you feel that it's all of those things. And what purpose is, is this kind of goal or principle that organizes your entire life and that involves making um, some kind of contribution to others. And it can be big or it can be small. You know, we talked earlier, like someone might think of their purpose as curing cancer. Another person might think of their purpose as, you know, being a good coach like you or being a good parent. Mm-hmm. The So is the purpose then what we do and the meaning is? Yeah. I, the purpose is like, it's, 
basically it, it's, it's what we do with our time, how we choose to spend our time um, during the day. And meaning is, is kind of the feeling that comes when we feel that the way that we're choosing to spend our time is, is worthwhile, basically. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. And I want to go now into storytelling because um, you write some really fantastic stuff in there about the stories and how we how we talk to ourselves, how we retell our own stories and the redemptive stories and the contamination stories. So can you dive into that now? So this was um, one of the surprising things that I discovered while I was writing my book. I kind of, I had a sense that, you know, purpose and belonging and transcendence, the other three pillars of meaning, that they it, it, that they would have a role to play in a meaningful life. And then my research kind of confirmed that storytelling was, was a surprise. And basically, when I'm talking about storytelling, I'm talking about the story that you tell yourself about yourself and about how you became the person you are today. And also the story that you're telling yourself is the kind of script that's running through your mind as you go through life day to day. Um, you know, there's, there's in narrative psychology, there's kind of this example that's given where, you know, let's say that you're, you know, you wake up in the morning and you, you slept in and you're running late for work and you're trying to get ready as quickly as you can. And as you're making your way out the door, you um, you realize that your keys are actually upstairs in your bedroom and that you've forgotten um, an important notebook that you're supposed to bring. So you run back up and you get them and you go, and now you're even more late to work. And on the way to work, you're kind of like beating yourself up and saying, I, you know, I'm so incompetent. I, I, I don't have my life together. Um, I, I, I never feel like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. That's the story that you're telling yourself. And if you kind of think about it, each of those events that occurred were kind of dots in your life. So you wake up late, that's one dot. You um, are rushing to get ready, that's another dot. Because you're rushing, you forget to grab your keys and your notebook, that's a third dot. And you connect those dots and then you come to this story about how incompetent and, um, and unworthy you are. But the thing is, there's actually all these other dots in your story that you're not paying attention to as you craft this kind of particular negative story about yourself. There's the dot of, you know, you got a really good evaluation at work that you, you know, are, you know, your that your child kind of is, has told you that they loved you that morning, that you um, are starting this new um, community that is going really well. And so, we, we do, the point of that is to say that we are choosing the stories that we tell about our lives. There's all kinds of data points and events and experiences in our lives. And the story that we tell is, an, an, is a narrative choice about which of those dots and data points we choose to highlight. And we can choose to highlight um, ones that kind of lead to a dysfunctional story of, I'm so bad, my, my life is horrible, or we can choose to tell ones that um, lead to a more, uh, you know, positive story of, you know, my life is making progress and I'm doing the things that I want to be doing. And um, you asked about redemptive and contamination stories. So this, um, these are two types of stories that psychologist Dan McAdams 
at Northwestern University talks about. He's kind of, he's studied people's narratives for decades now. And he's found that two of the types of stories that people tend to tell about their lives are redemptive stories or contamination stories. Redemptive stories are stories that move from bad things happening to good things happening. So, um, you know, I, I had a really terrible childhood. I experienced all kinds of adversity, but then I grew up and, and found um, a new purpose in helping kids um, lead better lives um, as a teacher. That would be a redemptive story. A contamination stories are stories that move from good things happening to bad things happening. So I had a wonderful childhood. I, you know, everything I wanted, I could have, I, everything I could have possibly wanted, I had. And then I got older and I flunked out of college and was never able to find a job and my life quickly unraveled. And what's really interesting is that McAdams has found that people who are leading meaningful lives tend to tell redemptive stories about their lives and that people who feel that their lives are not meaningful tend to tell contamination stories about their lives. And this suggests that, you know, the type of story you tell is affecting how meaningful your life is. And research shows that the type of story you tell also affects how you actually lead your life. So, um, you know, people in one study who kind of told stories about themselves as being generative people, people who kind of gave back to others, they, they later on in the experiment um, actually behaved more generously towards other people. And, you know, that's consistent with leading a meaningful life, like being a generous person who gives to others. So the story that you're telling kind of changes your behavior and it changes your behavior in such a way that helps you maybe recognize that your life is actually more meaningful. So stories are really powerful. They change the way we think about our lives and how we actually live our lives. And we can change our stories to help them empower us to lead more meaningful lives. So the, and I talk a lot about stories and the thoughts that we think in the show, but for the person who maybe is just coming to both of us for the first time, they would say, well, if you're just telling a, a better story, are you not really being honest or authentic? Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that it, it's so important to, to absolutely say that telling a different type of story about your life or trying to tell a more positive story about your life is an act that always respects the facts of your life and the difficulties that you've gone through and is never an act of kind of, um, of, of editing your life story in a way that introduces things that are not factually true or that are inauthentic. Um, but I, I would say this, um, two things. One is that the people who tell redemptive stories about their lives who, you know, and who are leading meaningful lives, they don't shy away from including all the gory details of how, um, how difficult life was and the adversities that they went through. The difference is, is that they were able to find some kind of positive meaning that came from it. So it wasn't all just gloom and doom. There was something hopeful, something they learned about themselves or something that they changed about their life that ultimately had some kind of um, positive effect on their lives. And recognizing whatever that was is the positive meaning that helps them tell a redemptive story. The other thing I'll say is that it's pretty well established in, in the research that 
people have a really strong negative bias. We tend to remember things more negatively than they occurred. We tend to, you know, negative events have a more profound impact on our minds. We tend to remember them more than positive ones. And so we're kind of going through life with this radar that's really sensitive for the negative and less sensitive for the positive, even though there are far more positive events occurring throughout our lives. So I would encourage people with that knowledge to reflect back on their stories and ask themselves if their story is kind of being unduly influenced by this negative bias and to really actively try to hunt for those positive things that could be incorporated into their story because their story is probably actually going to be more true if it has those more positive elements in it, just given that how strong and pervasive our negative bias is. You know, I think one one thing that I hear so many people do is kind of complain about their parents and complain about their childhood. Um, but, you know, our parents also did so many wonderful things for us that we may not recognize or that an outsider is more likely to recognize than we are because, you know, it's easy to criticize our parents and, 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 and we have this negative bias. So look for the good things. And I think looking for the good things is not necessarily going to in any way, take you away from the reality of what happened. Why do we have this strong negative bias? There, you know, there's a lot of theories for why. I think one of the, the more popular ones is that, you know, throughout the course of evolution, we, you know, the, the things that threatened us um, had a much more important effect on our very existence than, mm-hmm. than, than the things that were positive. So, you know, if, you know, if a tiger was kind of charging at you, it was really important to, be attuned to the, to, to the negativity that you were feeling in response to that because it like, it helped you survive. Um, whereas the positive things, um, they were nice, but they didn't really have this kind of survival impact. Well, of course, you know, we don't live in an environment where we're kind of constantly, we're lucky to not live in an environment, I should say, where we're not constantly kind of fighting for our survival. There are people in this world who unfortunately do live in an environment like that. And, but, but, we, but we don't. And I think because we don't, we can kind of, let our guards down a little bit and be more attuned to not, not just, you know, the, the bad things are happening and, and validating them and honoring them, but also all these good things that are happening. Well, in, in realizing that we have a system set up inside of us within our brain that when bad things do happen, we, we can be prepared and we can handle it instead of trying to dress rehearse tragedy all day long. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, so we're, we're kind of equipped, um, we're really well equipped to kind of deal with the negative. And this is um, this is one of kind of the fascinating findings of the research in resilience. Um, it shows that, um, you know, people can go through really awful things. You know, children, the, the research on resilience be, began by studying people in their childhood. And so the researchers kind of went and they looked at all these children who were leading really difficult lives. You know, one you know, single, single parent situations, poverty, um, you know, not enough food. And yet so many of the children were resilient and went on to lead good, productive lives. And so, you know, we're, we're kind of wired, I think. The default is to be resilient in the face of adversity. And we just have to kind of recognize that and, and trust it. Ooh, so we talked about courage and now trust. Yeah. Trust. I mean, that's a challenge, isn't it? 
I think it is, and especially for people who, to go back to something else that we talked about, um, are constantly yearning for more, aspiring for more. I think what that, what that, part of what that is, is kind of a lack of faith in, in the goodness of the life that you're living already, and in kind of the fact that you you have enough right now, and your resources are plenty. And so, just you know, take a step back and trust yourself to to not kind of ruin your life by not being part of this um, this treadmill mentality. How do you trust? You know, I, I think that, you know, it's, it's a struggle, you know, I'll, I'll admit, like, I think like, like I'm, a, I'm a lot like these people who were criticizing. I, I really, um, you know, I want to kind of constantly experience success in my careers. I want to kind of feel like I'm moving in a forward direction. Um, and I think that, I, you know, it, I, I trust by just realizing that I have, I have so much in my life already to be grateful for. And that even if my life doesn't take doesn't move in the direction that I want it to move in, I will still be able to find meaning in that new circumstance. It might be difficult and I might struggle, but um, there's always some meaning to be found in it. So Kristen Neff has been on my show uh, a number of times and she's a compassion researcher at University of Texas. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I learned from her is that compassionate people um, or compassion is the biggest motivator for change, which is very mm-hmm. counter what I grew up with. Um, and one of the things that I don't want the listeners to have mistaken is that to uh, to trust and to um, that and look at your own goodness doesn't mean that there's not a striving for excellence, or and it doesn't mean that you become complacent. Right. Because yeah. that we are, are, we are hardwired to evolve. And so, you know, wanting to challenge ourselves professionally, that it's, it, it's a, there's a difference between climbing the corporate ladder because you're trying to prove something versus mm-hmm. climbing the corporate ladder because you're growing and you're challenging yourself and it's fun. And to go through some struggle actually is kind of a cool thing. No, absolutely. I think where the trust comes in is like, trusting your own values and ideals mm-hmm. versus um, the kind of values and ideals that, you know, society is setting up for you. Society is saying a good life is a successful life, a wealthy life. You have to climb the ladder. But maybe you're saying, actually, I don't, I don't care so much about that. What I care about is excellence and becoming the, the best that I can be at whatever pursuit it is that I'm I'm interested in. And maybe becoming the best and pursuing excellence means that I have to, you know, give up some wealth or forego a promotion or kind of step outside of, of, of what society is telling me to do in order to pursue that excellence that's so important to me. So I think it's trusting yourself to know that your values and goals um, are, are sufficient, that you don't have to kind of adopt these values and goals that society wants you to. And and the other thing is that if you do want to be the top cheese, if you want to be the CEO of a big corporation, that's something that there's nothing wrong. You're not not pursuing meaning or purpose if that's aligned with your values. Yeah, I think if it's aligned with your values, I think like some people want to be CEO of the top cheese because they think it'll bring them glory or, um, you know, because all they want is to be respected by others and to have you know, be in a position of power. I think that actually um, the research shows that people who have that mindset 
end up feeling more depressed and like their lives are less meaningful. But if you want to, if, if your aspiration is to kind of make a difference in the world and to use your leadership to, to help other people, um, I certainly think that that is part of, of leading a meaningful life. So Emily, I just kind of believe we're all doofuses. <laughs> we, we, we achieve, we strive, you know, people have different kinds of success, you know, some are more famous than others. But in the end, I mean, it's kind of the idea when I say doofus, it's in a loving kind way. But, you know, it's, it's like what we always hear. Everybody puts their pants one pants on one leg at a time. We're all humans going through this experience. So there's not somebody that's better than another. But that's my that's my personal value. Um, yeah, I, I agree. I think like the great drama of life is like we're like constantly making mistakes and trying to, uh, you know, <laughs> correct them or lead better lives in light of them. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I love the, the making mistakes and Carol Dweck's been on the show too. And she's talked about the growth mindset, right? And so often culturally we are taught that we have to be perfect to be amazing. And we actually don't have to be perfect to be amazing or to live amazing lives. And so I, I just really appreciate this conversation that we've been able to have today because it gives the, the listeners a sense of permission of, okay, what is an amazing life for me? Mm-hmm. And, and, and also realizing that there's a lot of shit storms that come with it, right? There, yeah. there are things that are going on, but we can still have meaning and purpose. And sometimes it's like, we may not even know, you know, what we are doing or why we are doing it. There've been several, I mean, like running the swim team at first, I was like, mm-hmm. what am I doing? Yeah. I get involved in this thing, you know? And then I, I had concerns that, oh my gosh, is this taking too much from my family because of helping so many people. And then I look at the, you know, later on and I'm able to reflect and I look at how many people get to grow. And then going back to your point about, you know, that number one belonging, people have a place to belong, which is so important to me that people have a place to belong. So yeah, I, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh no, I, I was just going to say it's it's you know it's it, it it's a hard life, but it, it's a good life. Yeah, and and so one of the things just recently, I was at a naval navy uh, retirement, and one of the things that they do, just is from an outsider's perspective, is having that belonging where they're connected. And and then the other thing is that the old me would have said, well, this is really frivolous to have a massive ceremony for one person retiring. Like I thought it was going to be like a graduation where there were several, you know, a hundred people or whatever. And it was one person. And I thought, wow, this is such an important lesson because it teaches us to celebrate because there are hard times, but to come together and celebrate and honor. And then be, and that fills us up for those difficult times. And so whether again, the Navy is another place, I guess that I saw belonging, but when we can have that connection, which is something that you talk so much about and that being so important for all of us. Yeah. And I think that, you know, celebrating a, a life well lived is so, is, is so much, we need so much more of that in our culture. Cause I feel like we celebrate lives that are, um, you know, glamorous and successful and that um, aren't always, uh, you know, the most noble. And so I, you know, these kinds of retirement ceremonies and even funerals, we hear eulogies. Um, they're wonderful opportunities to kind of reflect back on what it means to live a good life. Yes. Well, Emily, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It was a pleasure to talk with you. Oh, it was a pleasure to talk with you as well. And thanks for having me. Absolutely. I want to circle back to something that Emily talked about, about with our narratives and with the redemptive stories. It's about owning our whole story. It's not just the glossy, you know, 
Facebook or Instagram highlight reel, but owning our own stories. And so an example of that is when I talk about, look, I'm walking down the street. I'm just so excited because I was, I think I went to yoga, I had a nice cup of coffee, was walking to the bank, got a bunch of quarters for our Easter egg hunt, totally excited. And it was just a nice Saturday afternoon. And I went, wow, I live an amazing life. I live an amazing life. And I was thinking about how far I had come in my life and, you know, being a kid with limited financial means and being able to go to the bank and pull out, you know, I don't know, it was like 30 or $40 for change and stuff for this Easter egg hunt. And it was that small thing that reminded me of how far I've come in my life and what I've been able to create in my life. And that's why I went, wow, I have to live an amazing life. And I will always own without an amazing life, there are shit storms. And with those shit storms, there are days that I'm like, this shouldn't be happening, which is actually a really toxic belief because now I'm arguing with what is. And as Byron Katie likes to say, when you argue with reality, you lose 100% of the time. So when you look around at your life, it's never to just wear rose-colored glasses and pretend the bad stuff isn't happening because it's about owning your whole story, owning your truth. And realizing there's beauty in our messes. There is actual beauty in our flaws. I've been talking about this for many years on this show. It's not about living it perfectly, not making mistakes that we put that pressure on ourselves, don't we? It's about being really truthful and owning our stories and really choosing how do we want to talk about our stories? What do we want to tell? Because I can tell you the exact same story in two different ways. I can tell you a story where I want you to pity me about my life, or I can tell you a story about how my life circumstances made me the woman that I am today with the resilience, you know, with the quest for knowledge, with the understanding of money because of how I grew up. So I give you that in the sense that when you talk about your stories, really choose them, be deliberate and give yourself permission. You're not going to do it perfectly. You're going to want to indulge in the drama because as Emily said, we have our brains have a negative bias. We have this old survival instinct and we, we tend to go there even when things are great. The other aspect of it is it can be a part, a form of foreboding joy. We're so afraid to really embrace what we love because we're afraid of losing it that we're waiting for the other shoe to drop instead of understanding that the other shoe is always going to drop. There's always going to be a problem down the road and enjoy this moment. That day last spring, I was walking down the street. It was sunny. It was gorgeous. And I was enjoying the moment. I have no idea what happened when I got home, if my teenagers were arguing or if my husband was grumpy or if, if I wasn't being very nice. I don't remember. But what I do remember is in that moment, and I know exactly where I was walking by the Varsity Theater in downtown Davis, I just went, wow, I live an amazing life. Who would have ever thought that little girl who struggled, who didn't really feel that she belonged, I live an amazing life and I helped create this. So I give you that in the sense that the show has always been about that we fall down and we get back up and we fall down and we get back up. And some days we feel like we fall down more than we get back up. I understand that. And when we can realize that that is part of, of it, right? It's the falling down, getting back up. I used to think, oh, if if I could live in, if the, the only way to live an amazing life is if I never fell down. But we don't grow that resilience. We don't learn how to overcome. 
And so that's why with the kids on the swim team, I've celebrated that they get disqualifications. I think that's fantastic because then they start to learn that, oh, they got a DQ. So you failed on that. What can we learn from it and move forward? And that's the key to the storytelling is what can we learn from this? And here's the thing. When you're in the eye of the storm, it's really hard to find meaning. Sometimes you need to get through it and have some space. Sometimes it's taking me two years after a very difficult situation until I actually could understand it. And sometimes for those of you that are trying to be the patient friend, spouse, partner, family member of the person who's really stuck in the storm, they may say it, you may say it, but they may not attach to it. That happened to me for two years. I was beating myself up. I couldn't understand the meaning of this struggle that I was going through for two years. And then I happened to be someplace and I heard somebody say something. I came back. I was so excited. I told my girlfriend, I said, oh my gosh, this is what I've learned from this. And she looked at me with bewilderment. She goes, Corinne, haven't we been talking about that for two years? We may have said those words. She may have said them to me. I may have said them to her, but they didn't sink in. They were so up in my brain. They weren't in my body yet because I had so much guilt and so much remorse and so much self-hatred that I couldn't absorb it. And when I could finally let that go, I can go, oh, this is why that occurred. And I understood it and it set me free, but it took me two years. So for some of us, I'm a slow learner. That's part of the process. So if somebody you're supporting is struggling, I just invite you that they will get there. And they may even say the words, but then you're going to know one day when they really get it in their bones. So storytelling is so important. Really check in with your stories, really check into what is fact. And then I want to go back to this idea about doing something for something that's bigger than yourselves, because there's so many parts of life that we will argue with, right? Going back to that, arguing that this shouldn't be happening. And anytime we argue, we're, we're going to lose when we argue with reality. And if you're a parent or you're part of a, you know, a community, there are certain responsibilities. And so like on our swim team, one of the things is that swim meets are run by volunteers. And, you know, there's always this bit of tension. And I was talking with our volunteer coordinator earlier this summer because there's some people that tend to hide away, you know, and not sign up for stuff and they hide away and they're easy up. And, um, but everybody kind of always knows who those people are. And, The thing I told her, I said, you know, the thing is, is that the people that show up and volunteer and contribute, they are actually going to get something more from it than those that hide away. Because if they're hiding away, there's probably a bit of shame that's going on. Not that I said that to my volunteer coordinator, but I say that to you because we talk about shame here. And the people that volunteer, they get connected. They have that sense of belonging. They get to know other people. They get to be a part of an experience. And it goes back to what Emily was saying earlier about when JFK went to NASA and he talked to the custodian, the custodian's like, look, I'm helping put a man on the moon. When we can see our purpose, our meaning, and that it's something bigger than ourselves. When a parent can say, wow, you know, my child is here and I'm going to go time because it helps with it run the meat faster. And my kid now sees that I'm in too. That's really what happens. So when the parents are thinking, oh, I shouldn't be doing this, the person that they're really hurting is their own kid. So I give you that as a different perspective for you to think about. It's not that I judge because everybody has to do what works for them. Um, And we all have our own understanding. But that was a bit of the insight that I learned this summer about volunteering. And I've been coaching swimming for, I think, 24 years. There was a lot 
of space and meaning. And remember, I love that, you know, I really feel like Emily gave us all permission that we don't have to be the next big thing, the next famous thing, you know, working at these brand name things that so much we get inundated with. You get to figure it out with your values and, you know, what do you like? And I I always say like, you're the boss of you or you be the leader of your life. And sometimes being that leader of your life, all of a sudden a right turn happens. And like me, I'm running the Aqua Monsters. I wouldn't have ever thought this was never my life plan. And there were some days in the middle of winter when I was sitting there going, huh, this is my life now. This is part of what I do. And it's my passion project. And I just remember going, wow, and I'm so happy doing it. So sometimes life gives you opportunities that you didn't even know you wanted. And one of the things that I say about the monsters for our families is that for the parents, it's everything you ever wanted and never knew. And when you can really step into something and commit to something and see, but only do that if it aligns with your values, only do that if it aligns with your values. In my life, as I'll just say as interesting as it is, because I think it's a bit crazy, but it is everything that I ever wanted. And I didn't know when I was 20 years old that it was what I wanted. And it's interesting how these ingredients came together to give me a life that's fulfilling and of well-being. So I invite you to take small steps to get there. I didn't know that this was going to be my path. And it's so funny because at one point when I was, I, you know, I wasn't even a person that liked PE. And that's what I, one of the things that I taught at the college was PE. And one day I went, wow, I'm a PE teacher. It was like seven years or longer into the process of the job, but I didn't even realize it because I'd always identified myself as a coach. So I give you that information in that sometimes it can be everything you ever wanted and you never knew. Go inside and look. And if you're not living something that's with meaning and purpose in your life, then start taking small steps. They don't have to be gigantic leaps. Start taking small steps. And it's like the Marco Polo game. It's warmer and colder, warmer and colder. And pay attention to that. Thank you so much for listening today. I want to do a shout out to one of our listeners in the UK, Bunny Conga. Thank you so much for reaching out and posting uh, iTunes review. Yay, you. And for the rest of you, get signed up on my newsletter list. Let's We're creating a community there. There's some new stuff that's coming down the pipeline. So I can't wait to see you there. Until next time, I'm smelling big for you. Ooh, on a lid.